Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And it's still Shocktober! <laughs> we gotta get some new sound effects, man. We do like the same four every time. <laughs> what are the other sound effects? Can, can you actually like bring in some props, like some some chattering chains? I thought or... you were gonna say like chattering teeth, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or we can get a creaking door. Yeah, exactly. So. This week, we decided to shake it up a little bit, and we only watched two movies. I watched more, but yeah. So we decided to do uh, the film Last House on the Dead End Street. Last House on Dead End Street. I always get that one wrong, because it's Last House on the Left. Right. And um, Carnival of Souls. And the theme of this week is one-shot horror auteurs. Uh, Horror directors who made one significant horror film, uh, maybe just even one significant film, Knocked it out of the park and then never again. Although we found out that Roger Watkins, <laughs> the uh, director of Last House on Dead End Street, actually did make another horror <laughs> film. And 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 uh, both Roger Watkins and Herc Harvey have made many films, but in genres that one wouldn't necessarily consider mainstream film. So we're going to start with Carnival Souls, because that's the older one and the classy one. And this is one that is known far and wide, because if I'm not mistaken, it was considered to be in the public domain, right? Yes, like Night of the Living Dead, uh, they never put a copyright notice on it, which apparently immediately made a public domain. And it's about sending it to the Library of Congress as well. Like, if you don't do that, then someone jumps in there and is like, I guess it's free copyright, and then it just spreads like wildfire, and there's nothing you can do at that point. Right, although it has recently been released on a Criterion Blu-ray. Yes, in a beautiful transfer. Oh, gorgeous, yeah. Now, before we jump into the movie, I just want to contextualize this, which is the way that Carnival Souls is considered by a certain number of people. And by that, I mean the people of MST3K, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm really sorry that we have to talk about this. <laughs> so I think you sent me this interview, didn't we? Didn't you? Yeah, possibly. Because the... that's happening this Halloween. They're doing a riff live in theaters. R- riff Tracks, which, as you probably know, Riff Tracks is the uh, uh, kind of Mystery Science Theater offshoot where, where several of the guys who did Mystery Science Theater uh, make fun of movies without the puppets yeah you know uh, and, it, and it gets beamed into theaters you know i like riff tracks it's it's pretty funny i mean they did starship troopers before well, that like here's here's when i like them the least i like them the least when they pick a movie that is actually good and don't seem to understand why it's good and they argued that the film is super boring and <sighs> they also said that um they have to show it in color because if they showed it in black and white like teens just wouldn't see it because they don't watch black and white movies ever yeah they're showing a colorized version that is insane um and honestly i think if you're making fun of bad movies like you've got to at least like show it the way it was made like it has to be a fair fight right like because if you're colorizing carnival of souls you're losing a lot of what's great about it you know the mood the atmosphere the photography so had you seen this movie before yeah once before it was never a a huge favorite of mine Mm -hmm. it's kind of a cult classic for a lot of people uh you know i think like the val luton movies a lot of people like it because it's a horror movie that has no gore it's just kind of like mood and atmosphere i remember watching it a long time ago and finding it kind of okay and i revisited it um for this podcast on the Criterion Blu-ray and I found just while it's airy and dreamlike in its um, presentation it's also much tighter than I remember it being that there's kind of a lot of incident and stuff going on yeah and the movie's more coherent stylistically than I remembered it uh, a little a little background about this movie 
Uh, Herc Harvey was a director of educational films and what they called mental hygiene films, uh, working for a company called Coronet, which I believe was considered the best maker of mental hygiene films in the 50s. Uh, I was looking at Herc Harvey's uh, IMDb, and I was kind of amazed how many of his films I'd seen. Really? Like, like on classroom reels and stuff? Yeah, like? a lot of them uh, had been on Mystery Science Theater. So mm. he did uh, What About Juvenile Delinquency, Why Study Industrial Arts. And- Maybe they have, like... Uh- it out against him because they said like you can't show my mental hygiene films anymore he, he also did uh long after carnival of souls he did a work a work site safety film called shake hands with danger that's like a famous one isn't yeah it? because it's really gory and, yeah. and brutal it's really funny and well <laughs> worth looking up but carnival of souls uh was a movie that uh herc made when he had three weeks vacation from Coronet, uh, basically because, you know, he wanted to make something that was his own. He wanted to make something good. And he happened to just drive past this uh, abandoned, like, outdoor carousel uh, ballroom um, on kind of the beach of part of the Mississippi, and he thought it would make a really good horror film location. Yeah. I mean, the title of the film is fairly literal, that there is a carnival that the main character visits. Mm -hmm. And for people that don't know what the plot of the movie is, and I mean, we're going to spoil it, even though spoiler really doesn't affect the actual experience of watching the movie. Yeah. Which is that a, a gang of hooligans are racing down the street when they run into another car of women that are also racing. And they get into a bit of a car accident, and one of the cars filled with the women crashes into the river... And seemingly everybody drowns. It, it falls off a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. But, and they seemingly all drown. But one woman seemingly yeah. survives. She walks ashore. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not, though. But yeah, she walks ashore. Um, and then what happens? She moves to a new town. Yeah. She decides to um, go somewhere else, get, get kind of out of the feeling that she has of what following the accident and she's a professional organist a church organist by trade you i mean are there any other kind of organists like i guess phantom of the operas and stuff like that much of the movie by the way is scored to like church organ music which adds to its sort of weird dreamy tone i remember when it started i was kind of like oh man am i gonna have to put up with this for the entire movie (laughs) but then when it transitions into revealing that she actually plays the church organ it makes a lot more sense and it feels like it has a lot more structure from that point Forward. I really like the organ music. It's that kind of like cow- counterintuitive music, sort of like the zither score in The Third Man, <laughs> which just adds this sort of weird counterpoint to what we're seeing on screen. It doesn't really echo the action at all. So the main character goes to this weird town and she finds that right away there's this pasty white ghoul. And by that, I mean just a guy in white makeup following her. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time we see her, him is he's like floating outside of her car. Mm-hmm. And from then on, she sees him in rooms. She sees him when she's out in public and he's following her she doesn't know why and periodically she falls into this strange state where everyone around her she can see but they can't see her (laughs) she tries talking to them but no dice Uh, meanwhile at her boarding house where she's living there's a a cool young guy who's putting the moves on her didn't you like this guy (laughs) no i did not (laughs) (laughs) uh and trying to trying to get a date with her but she's uh she's a little weird and their relationship doesn't quite work out no and it all culminates with her going to the titular carnival of souls which is this big abandoned amusement park uh i don't even where's it located mississippi uh, yeah, well, the movie was shot largely in Kansas. I believe mm. it was uh, somewhere on the Mississippi. Which looks like a crazy death trap. Mm-hmm. And 
it ends with the reveal that she has been dead the entire time. Or does it? It's like, maybe she should have died. It's still ambiguous. Now, uh, it sounds like we gave away a lot of the plot, but it's really not about plot. Yeah, it's all about mood. That's all that it's about. Not, I said that it was packed as incident, but actual the plot moving forward, nothing really happens. But it's a very weird kind of mood, a very specific kind of mood that I'm not sure I can really liken to a lot of other filmmakers. People have compared it to David Lynch. It's not quite as ostentatious as David Lynch. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that Herc Harvey made um, mental hygiene educational films because this movie is set in this sort of like small town Mayberry America. Um, And it, it feels like, you know, it feels like the same kind of setting that one of his educational films would have been yeah. in, but just a little bit off. Well, I think that the kind of grounded nature of it, like she has a wise cracking landlord and um, <laughs> you f- get a sense of the whole community and stuff like that. There's this really funny part where she goes to take a drink from a water fountain and then she's surprised by what she thinks is the ghoul. And she runs into a guy who's like, oh, I'm a psychologist. Come up to my office and I'll just treat you. A lot of the people in this movie feel like, you know, they could have just been guys that her canoe yeah. in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- I guess you could also compare the mood of the movie to something like uh, Polanski's, you know, yeah. apartment trilogy. The Tenant, Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, uh, where it's, you know, like this woman wandering around and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the world seems to be closing in on her. Uh, how do you like the look of the movie, though? I mean, I feel really happy that I saw this on the Criterion Blu-ray. Well, it looks great. Uh, because there's something about, like, it's a movie... Well, it's a very formal film, right? In the way that it's photographed? Well, uh, I know that it's been released on so many kind of, like, public domain VHS. Yeah, that looks like shit. <laughs> but, like, this is a movie that's supposed to look really high contrast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of scenes... Like, when I say it's not ostentatious, um, it's like... He's not, there aren't a lot of special effects and there aren't a lot of crazy camera moves, but he just has a way of like putting the camera in a position that is strange. Like we see her early in the movie, um, you know, playing the organ at a church and the camera is sort of like high up in the church and you just see like, you know, how big this organ is and how it takes up so much of the frame. Like her Carvey is very interested in like just the way things look geometrically. I love that shot where... Um, all the ghouls are kind of dancing around and it cuts to her dancing too. And there's a low angle on her and she's spinning around in a circle, which yeah. kind of breaks that um, feel that the rest of the movie has where you're like, whoa, what, what is this? Yeah. Or there's another scene when it's at the bus station uh, and just the way that like the checkered tiles of the bus station look. Uh, I mean, again, this is kind of like that Lynchian thing of, you know, finding the unsettling, uh, uh, the unsettling in the banal. Well, it's all about kind of like the nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. Where it kind of makes sense while it's happening. Like when she, at one point she gets on a bus and it's filled with ghouls on it. And she's like, oh, and she like runs back out. But interestingly, you look at those ghouls and like the ghouls don't look that much different than anybody in one of Herc's educational films <laughs> would have looked at. Like they still look like these kind of like clean cut all American people just with some like pasty white face makeup on. Well, that's what's scariest of all, because they look familiar, but something is a little bit off and wrong about them. I was listening to Herc Harvey's commentary track, which was recorded in the 80s, and he said that uh, he wanted the look of Bergman, but the feel of Cocteau. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is some very um, high watermarks to aim for. Well, you know, because I was watching this movie and I was thinking, you know, I really like this, but how much of how much of what I liked about it was intentional? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know what? I'm going to give uh, but, but, a lot of benefit of the doubt, like especially when he makes a statement like that. Yeah, exactly. Where it's not coming from a place of like, all I know are mental hygiene films. I'm going to make myself a scary movie that he has a definite goal and kind of feel that he's going for. But whereas I think of a movie like Night of the Living Dead, which an- another public domain horror film by a uh, guy who worked in industrial films. Yep. Uh, that's a movie where it feels like everyone got together and decided, well, let's make a quick and easy exploitation film that we can we can sell and that'll establish us. But somehow, somewhere along the lines, all this subtext got added to it. Like it was very, I feel like Night of the Living Dead is very unconscious. Yes. Like it wasn't meant to be, like as they say, when they cast a black guy as the hero, they didn't go out with any specific agenda with it. No, I mean, they co- just cast the best actor they could find. Right. They didn't even really change the role. I think any changes to the role were brought by the actor, specifically with the way that he wanted to approach the character. Right, or the fact that, you know, the zombies basically win, mm-hmm. uh, or that the patriarchal uh, male figure in Night of the Living Dead is a uh, is kind of a doofus. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it wasn't supposed to be 1967. 1967 just, like, creeped into it. It's interesting that Carnival of Souls, which is very much kind of compared to Night of the Living Dead, hasn't achieved that universal recognition that, like, Night has, right? So while it's been floating a long time in public domain and stuff like that, if you ask a 15-year-old what Night of the Living Dead is, they'll go, oh yeah, I know what that is. Carnival of Souls, they'll just give you a blank look. Well, I think Carnival of Souls has less, um, has less, like, of the goods in it. Yeah, like, I guess so. Like it has Even made... though that it's basically a zombie film yeah. at its core, especially in its final moments. But it's also not a scary film. No. It's just kind of a disquieting... Unsettling film, yeah. yeah. While Night of the Living Dead has, you know... The people eating guts and stuff like that, which is much more in your face. And Night of the Living Dead has this like kind of like pounding momentum to it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Carnival of Souls is the more weightless kind of going through life kind of thing until finally it ends. How did you like the actors in this movie, by the way? Like for particularly the leading lady whose name I forgot. I, it was interesting at how kind of confrontational she is in the movie. She doesn't always paint a very sympathetic picture of herself. Mm-hmm. But as the movie goes along and as she gets more and more unfrayed... It's. I feel like there's a lot going on there that the director probably planned but doesn't deliver on the film. She talks about a lot of being afraid of being alone mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I found that very compelling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as I mentioned earlier that it's like a lot of people who Herc probably just knew, mm-hmm. but they all have this kind of like off quality to yeah. them. Uh, I mean, you know, she's, I think, quite a good actress, but a lot of the people in the movie just like their line readings are just a little weird. Yeah, they are. Just <laughs> not, not quite. Yeah. Again, like a waking dream. And also the waking dream quality is just like in the atmosphere of the town. You never get a great sense of like community in this town. You never quite like there's a scene where uh, the main actress goes on a date with that guy. Yeah. And they're at this like dance hall. Like, what is this dance hall? There are all these people around them, but they feel somewhat alienated from all these people. Yeah. It almost feels like sometimes the people are looking in what's going on, but a step back. And like nobody is really connecting to each other. Yeah. The way that actors normally would. I mean, it's like we don't need to kind of defend Carnival of Souls. Like it's known as a classic, but it's one of those weird feelings, too. It's like, well, people don't really know it or they treat it as a joke like the fucking Rift Tracks guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, that's when I like Rift Tracks the least where where it's like. To, to say what they said about Carnival of Souls just implies that you don't have kind of like the mental curiosity to like 
find out why people like it. Mm-hmm. All right. So moving on, we have a classic film, Last House on Dead End Street. Now, before we jump into what this movie is, we should give some context of how it became popular. Mm-hmm. And so this movie came out in 19, late 70s, right? Well, it, it was filmed in 1972. It had yeah. some theatrical play in 73 and 74, but it was re-released in 77 under the title Last House on Dead End Street. It used... it. it the first title was The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell. Which is a line from a Kurt Vonnegut book. Yeah. And this movie was chopped up to pieces from its original supposedly three-hour running time. And it played in grindhouses and stuff like that. And the current version we have is only like 78 minutes. And I think that it never got an official North American video release. Mm -hmm. So the only place it releases was as a famous like Venezuelan bootleg, like that's what it was called, (laughs) was like a fourth generation, all fuzzy, like it looks like it could be real kind of movie that... Yeah. People thought, like, oh, is this a snuff film? Right, because nobody knew who directed it. All yeah. all the names in the end credits were fake. Yeah, people actually thought, is this a real snuff film? That is insane, watching the movie. Yeah, but, I mean, um, but I don't know, maybe on a fourth generation dupe where you don't know how it came into being. Only the last 30 minutes or something like that. That's just people who kind of want it to be a snuff film. Yeah. Like, people who dream about discovering a snuff film. Like Charlie Sheen? Yeah, like that famous story where he saw one of the guinea pig films and like called the FBI, I think, to report it. I'm glad that Charlie Sheen has a conscience. (laughs) Um, And so Last House on the End Street for a long time was just this infamous video that nobody knew who made it. And then around the year 2000, if I'm not mistaken, the director um, went on a message board of Fab Press, great publication house. Love it. And said, oh, I'm the one who directed this movie. Mm-hmm. I just was taken away from me and cut up. So I just never like stepped up for it. And then people started asking him questions and, you know, it, it was verified by golly. It was, it was this guy, Roger Watkins, who it turns out also directed like a half dozen or more porn films under pseudonyms as well. So Roger Watkins, I mean, he is the ult- ultimate of like Maudit auteurs. Yes. The Coyote Cinema guys, when they discovered Edgar G. Elmer, they thought that this was as underground as it got like Roger Watkins, uh, you know, has never even been credited under his own name on a movie. Mostly because almost all of it was taken away from him and recut, or even the porn films, where it sounds like he had quite a lot of control. He didn't want to make porn films. Even the earlier films that he made, he wouldn't shoot the hardcore sequences. Mm -hmm. And when asked about those uh, films, he said, you know, I had a pregnant wife. I needed to make some money. So I went out and did pornography. But, you know, when you actually watch his porn films, as I have, uh, like, I think they're amazing. They're these, like, really weird, depressing mood pieces Mm -hmm. that happen to have pornography in them. Roger Watkins has said that he's, like, for some of his better ones, he's, you know, made a version of them where he cut out all the sex scenes. So they're, like, 30-minute long movies, but they're really good. Yeah. And, I mean, Last House on the Dead End Street... Even in its most mutilated form, which is the only one that we have right now, at like 80, like you said, 70-something minutes, it is hypnotizing. Mm -hmm. Like, I had never seen the movie before um, having to do this podcast, and it was actually Will who was like, I want to do Last House on Dead End Street. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll finally watch it, because it's one of these, like, films that is talked about all the time in kind of, like, horror message boards and stuff like that. And what I discovered was this, like, hypnotic almost incomprehensible film about a a director wanting to make a film. And if there's anything that I love more than films (laughs) about filmmakers, 
I don't know what it is. What's your favorite part of this movie? <laughs> uh, my favorite part of this movie is when the main character, who is the filmmaker, who we should point out, is also played by Roger Watkins. Uh, the auteur. Beats up one of the victims that they've captured, screaming, I'm the fucking director of this movie! I'm the fucking director! <laughs> and he's just like foaming at the mouse and like kicking the guy's head You in. identified with this, I completely yeah. identified. And I think at that point he's killing a producer as well, so I'm like, mm, yeah. So what this little scab of a movie is about is uh, this guy, played by Roger Watkins, is released from prison. Uh, he's been there on drug charges and he wants to get into the film business so he starts making some stag films but unfortunately stag films don't sell people want to see harder stuff so then he starts making snuff films and people start saying hey how come these snuff films seem so real well guess what because they are real and now the way that you describe that story was very linear and it made sense the movie does not play by those rules. Right. So this is a three-hour movie that had 100 minutes cut out of it. <laughs> yeah, so. And you can feel it. Like, you're like, whoa. But it. Uh, but uh, apparently, like, the second half of this movie is basically as it was in the and original And the first plot. 30 minutes were supposedly documentary footage of a slaughterhouse. Yeah. And there is still a bit of that. In yes, the there is. There's this, like, really brutal scene of a cow being killed, which kind of, I think, sets the tone early <laughs> yeah. on for what we're going to see. Uh this movie, I mean, it looks terrible mm-hmm. in a good way, though. Yeah, like it looks like it was just found at the side of the <laughs> side of the road. Um, but there's a lot of like, there's some intelligence to the way the movie is shot. Uh, Watkins has this favorite motif of like having a light shining right at the camera so that it looks like we're you know in a void basically. Yeah. And it's the classic thing that you see in. Um movies where people don't know how to light which is that like every everything disappears and there's just one character right in the middle doing something mm-hmm. but like you were saying the big difference here is that this style is on purpose right like he knows what he's doing and he's going for a particular look at the risk of sounding pretentious there's something about the lighting and the camera work that reminds me a little bit of like late period orson welles you, i would completely see it yeah yeah that kind of off the cuff um, like I, the other side of the wind. For yeah, instance. exactly. Yeah. Where, I mean, the director, he did come out and he talked about the film afterwards. But if you listen to the commentary on the long out of print barrel DVD release, he is really pissed off at the version that exists now. Yeah. In the commentary, he keeps saying stuff like, I can't even watch this. Specifically like, that um, he supposedly dubbed the film uh, himself because they didn't shoot with sound. But when the distributor picked it up, they were like, can you dub it again? And what they did was they just rolled the movie for him and he had to do it (laughs) as it played. And he only did one or two takes. So the dubbing in this film is completely off. But personally, I think that just adds to like the dreamlike atmosphere. Oh, yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, Another thing I like about the movie is like there is no audience surrogate in this film. Oh, no. Everyone's a piece of shit. Everyone's either a piece of shit or it's just like this desperate person Mm -hmm. uh i mean the movie was made by watkins and like his friends at film school but everyone looks like they could have just been like found at the side of the road in a ditch yeah i mean when you go into the special feature of the dvd it kind of destroys that mystique that the film probably had back in the 80s and 90s where it's like what is this piece of garbage Mm -hmm. well while you watch it now through the lens of like well this is a real filmmaker trying to do real things it's much more kind of fascinating for me Mm -hmm. than it would be that if i had seen this in like, uh, I don't know, and not had any context for it, I would have probably been like, ugh, what is this piece of garbage? We've also said again, like, you know, we said about both these movies that they're very dreamlike. 
Uh, but I mean, how else do you describe a scene where the producer of stag films has this sex party and he has his wife naked in the room in blackface and he's whipping her? Or what about the scene where um, one of the producers of the film has to give a blowjob to a hoof of a deer oh my God. through the pants of a woman in a completely empty black room as people film with like lights on the side? Also, uh, like some of like the slaughter scenes, the slasher scenes are, I mean, they really do look sickeningly real. <laughs> yeah, like that scene so near gross. the end when somebody is like dismembered and their <laughs> their guts are pulled out and stuff like that. How do you like Roger Watkins as an actor? Uh, I think he's crazy and all over the place. I mean, I he looks him. like how I would imagine Charles Manson would have looked like in his prime. I, watching the movie, I kind of saw he looked like Bill Hader doing yeah, a, a crazed performance in a movie. Listening to the commentary, it's really interesting that like um, Roger Watkins was like, oh, this scene would have worked because we established this or it was supposed to end with that but by clipping those beginnings and endings of scenes and sometimes complete middles it adds a kind of like what is going on feel to it all Mm -hmm. that i really appreciate i ventured a little more into the roger watkins filmography after this i'd I'd been familiar with some of his porn movies before because robin bougie uh, wrote an article for Cinema Sewer a few years ago called Roger Watkins, The Thinking Man's Pornographer. Well, I've, I, I watched Corruption that uh, Vinegar Syndrome Oh, did you like out. it? Oh, I really liked it. I thought it. it was amazing, yeah. It is so, like, kind of beautifully lensed and has a look that you don't associate with pornos ever. It looks like, like, Louis Benwell or exactly, something. Exactly, yeah. So, like, the early scenes... Uh, part of the movie is set at this like underground uh sex emporium or brothel uh where like wall street guys go and it's all color coded like a nick rogue film and stuff like that like it looks nuts but like wall street guys go there to renounce love basically so they go from one room to the next and each room as you said is color coded and once they renounce love they're able to have sex with someone and then the movie stars jamie gillis from the opening of misty beethoven as this uh you know, a uh, guy who sold his soul to become successful at business. And in between the sex scenes, he's just like total ennui. Like there's a scene of him with his wife when she's like, do you love me? Sure. You don't take much. You talk, you're not, you're not too difficult. Or, you know, whatever yeah. it is he says, I don't ask anything. Well, yeah, you don't ask anything. Like, it's just, you know, the dreariest dialogue. And after their sex scene, Jamie Gillis, like walks in slow motion to the window and he stares out at it as this like cl- as classical music plays and there's this like weird montage of shots of the financial district <laughs> <laughs> beautiful oh it's powerful and uh, thank god some a company like vinegar syndrome put it out in like a completely remastered version looking better than it ever has and i i just want to make a note that on that dv that blu-ray there's also a special feature that you can watch a new kind of scan of Last House on Dead End Street. Yeah, Vinegar Syndrome is trying to restore Last House yeah. on Dead End Street. They're supposedly going to release it under its uh, title, The Fun House. Oh, okay. I don't know why. There's a million movies called The Fun House. Very confusing. Yeah. But other Roger Watkin films. So I watched his second horror film, his second and last mainstream horror film, which was called Shadows of the Mind. Um, and this is one that people didn't know Roger Watkins directed till I believe after his death. Right. Um, in fact, it was the direction was credited to the producer of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it was basically a vanity project for the producer's wife. A producer who is also um, credited on Last House on Dead End Street. And when his name is brought up on the commentary, Roger Watkins goes, oh, yeah, that jerk committed suicide. Good. Like, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> the producer was the one who apparently cut out like an hour or two hours of uh, Last House on Dead End Street. But um, Shadows of the Mind, uh, you know, it's a pretty standard. Again, it's very much like Repulsion or one of the Polanski films about a woman who uh, witnessed the death death of her father and mother-in-law was in psychiatric care for many years and then returns to the house where she grew up where you know murders and i didn't see there. that one is it is it just not as interesting you know or? i was pretty disappointed by it it's it's very slow and not in a good way i mean roger Watkins said that the budget of um last house on dead End street was something like three thousand dollars i think and he spent two thirds of it on amphetam- amphetamines yeah because he was addicted at the time yeah. and maybe he needed some of that um push when he made his next film well shadows of the mind just looks like kind of a, an average 70s tv movie mm. but i also looked at another of his porn films Midnight Heat which stars Jamie Gillis again as an assassin who uh, stoops a mob boss's wife and the mob boss walks in on him gives him the kiss, kiss of death literally gives him the kiss of death <laughs> and then the rest of the movie Jamie Gillis is holed up in a sleazy apartment you know calling call girls and they come and in between sex scenes they had these like weird pseudo philosophical discussions where Gillis will be looking out the window going see that homeless man what separates him from us? Or like he'll be he'll be talking about T. S. Eliot or something. Again, another amazing, like inexplicable film. Like, how does this exist? It's this weird neo-noir mood piece with porn. But we should clarify too is that you may think that the way that we're talking is like, this guy is crazy and he doesn't know how to make movies. But that's not what we're saying. We're actually saying the exact opposite. Is that this is a talent that if somehow someone had been like, here's some money to make a movie like a real movie go and do it like and the funny thing is if someone had been like here's some money to make a real movie who knows what that could have been because he never got that chance right every movie is either compromised or you know a porn film yeah do you think he has like a jd salinger like library of like feature films he shot that he never released i would love that i mean if i if i had known that the director of corruption oh sorry I never would have guessed that the director of Corruption also did Last House on Dead End Street. They're so stylistically different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't think if he'd had money, uh, unfortunately, he I don't think he would have made Last House on Dead End Street. No, I think I a lot think of so, the yeah. style is just by necessity. Uh, I know in interviews, Roger Watkins said that he thought it looked amateurish in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, corruption or Midnight Heat both look quite, you know, quite beautiful. They're very, they're very slick and... Uh, uh, again, Bunuelian. Well, when he talks about his inspirations, he said that the H.G. E. Lewis films weren't really what he was looking at. He was actually more of a fan of like Val Newton and the Hammer horror films. That's what he liked. Or uh, he claims to have been friendly with Nicholas Ray and Otto Preminger. Uh, so I guess that's what he aspired to. Yeah, and it's a real shame that that could actually never happen for him. But you know what? I value his filmography as it is. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's a really interesting book to be written about his life and the people that he worked with. So let's get the ball rolling. <laughs> yeah, all right. Me and Will are going to write this book on Roger <laughs> Watkins coming soon uh, to the remainder shelf at BMV Books <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> from Fab Press. Um, what are we doing next week, Will? 
Well, it's the final week of Shocktober. This is five fucking weeks of Shocktober. Hey, you were the one who wanted this. I do. I do want it. I want it too. Yeah. Uh, what can we say? That's how October worked this year. Yes. So uh, Argento v. Fulci. Yes. Who will come out on top? And as we said before, Will, not a big fan of Argento, are you? You know, uh, maybe I got to give him another chance. I think that Dario Argento, take a movie like Deep Red, um, 80 minutes of pure boredom, 20 minutes of nifty camera moves and neat music. I've never liked Deep Red, mm-hmm. so it'll be real interesting. You know what? I'm going to go revisit that one and see if I'll warm to it. Fulci is the man I like. Love Fulci. Yeah. Fulci is the best. Uh, except when he's really bad. Then he's terrible. Right. All right. So we're not going to pick any specific movies. We're just going to kind of jump around their filmographies, I think, right? Yeah. But like, you know what ones we're going to yeah, talk the about. The Beyond, Deep Red. Suspiria. Yeah. yeah. We're going to talk about all those things. So until then, keep it spooky. <laughs> My name's Justin the Clue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So on the weekend, you had a saw marathon with with some of your buddies, and I dropped by for a little bit of it, but you saw all of them. Yeah, it's the most shocking time of the year, and we decided to do a long marathon, which we've done before. We've did it for the Fast and Furious films twice. We did it for Resident Evil, woof, and we decided to do it for Saw. Now, Saw was, I mean, have people forgotten what Saw is, even though the last one came out in like 2009? Well, kids today, you know, probably don't know what Saw is. Is. Yeah, that's I can't crazy. believe I'm saying that. But but I mean it's like every generation has its own cultural bullshit. Yeah. That that is discarded and is not carried on to the next generation. Like Saw when we were teenagers was that, the everything. That, every Halloween a Saw movie. That was came our out. Friday the thirteenth, our nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Did you see them in theaters? Because I was too young and where no, I lived there were no theaters. I saw so. I saw the first three on DVD and mm-hmm. uh by the time the third one came around, I watched it, didn't like it, and didn't continue. Yeah, me too. I had never seen past the third one. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, because I was such a big horror movie fan, and I know that I own one, two, three on DVD. So why I didn't watch the fourth one, it's kind of baffling. Well, it's because they were very mainstream, right? They were the mainstream (laughs) horror films. And also, like, I remember finding Saw 3 very unpleasant. Yes. And not liking it at all. So what's the point? So me and my group of friends, we started at 11 a.m. in the morning because it's a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. And about part two, my my pals, Matthew Kumar, um, host of the Loose Cans podcast, was like, I'm going to go do the dishes. Like, in the middle of the movie. I popped in, I saw the the last half hour of Saw 1, which which was pretty tedious. I saw all of Saw 2, which was pretty bad. And I saw the first, like, 20 minutes of Saw 3, which was just garbage. So, you know. So, basically, at one point, Will... Uh, Pierce, my other friend, and Matthew were all out of the room, and I was sitting (laughs) watching Saw 2 projected on a wall by myself. And honestly, I thought, why am I doing this? Yeah. Do I need to watch these movies, like, basically by myself? Well, just like a Saw film. Big plot twist, everyone. By the end of part three, we were like, mm, no, you know what? I'm liking this. And then part four is so insane and rewrites the history of everything that you've seen before. It made it super fun. It also has some of the most insane transitions I have ever seen, like more over the top than an Edgar Wright film. And they're all done practically. Like at one point, a woman gets thrown through a glass window and it cut. she flies through the glass window and she lands in a police department where the people just continue their dialogue as if they didn't see her. But what Saw does is it's one of the most convoluted fan service series ever. 
because they're constantly bringing back characters. They're like, hey, in part seven, remember this character from part three? He was in on it the whole time. Okay, that's hilarious because like the Saw movies are as ephemeral as it gets. People went to see them, forgot them immediately. Like we were watching Saw 5 and we went, if you had not just watched Saw 4 before seeing this movie, it would be incomprehensible. Like, it would make no sense. Interesting. That's probably why the series, like, declined pretty pretty rapidly in box office. Saw 7 actually made more money than Saw, like, 6 and 5. Okay. Basically, the decision was Saw 6 didn't do so well, so they were like, oh, we're ending it with the 7th part. And then Saw 7 did, you know, bofo box office, and they were like, ah, shit. Well, I guess we said we were ending the series, or yeah. maybe it's expensive to bring the cast members back over well, and over again. you know, I mean, this, I'm not too surprised to hear this, though, because as we've said before, long-running series tend to get crazier as they go along. Mm. I will say that, like, as I was watching Saw 1 and 2, I thought, I found these movies not good, but mildly enjoyable when I was a teenager and I had no idea what I saw in because I thought I like these movies like they look like shit they're just gimmicky garbage the philosophy of them is ridiculous it's like it's so stupid well I like to tell you that Saw 3 completely explain why the philosophies make no sense okay does it yeah it does. like by saw three jigsaw's little traps had become so elaborate <laughs> yeah. and it's like this isn't even a fair like nobody can even escape these a little bit of a spoiler remember when we were like this person couldn't escape this or like in part one he's like he couldn't have made it out anyway it's revealed that a character was rigging the games and they weren't supposed to this is in saw three saw three at uh, the end of saw three okay Fun fact, I saw Saw 3 when yeah, I was younger. You don't remember that. No right? memory at all. I had no memory of that either. But you know what? Maybe it's because I hadn't seen Saw 1 and 2 right before it. Well, you know, it's nice to know that, like, the series gets better. Um, and I, I'll probably never see them, but that's okay. No, it's uh, people were messaging us because uh, Matthew was tweeting as he was going along being <laughs> like, oh, should I do this marathon? And he was like, mm, I don't think so. Unless you have a bunch of friends who can laugh along with it. Anyway, I had fun while I was there, despite the movies, despite the kind of like sub seven garbage <laughs> yeah. that the movies are. Uh, I, You know, as I left, I was kind of, I kind of even felt a little sad that I was leaving. <laughs> oh, really? Well, because by that point, I'd, I'd started to get a little bit invested in this stupid story that this movie's in the building. <laughs> well, we talked about also that there's a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. Like, yeah. you know, when you... St- uh, people watch a TV show for like a long time and you're like, why do you keep watching the show? Yeah. And it's like, well, I saw 10 episodes. I guess I'll watch the next one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what happens with the Saw series. And it's also that constant like rejiggering, like in part five, uh, f- five or six, they're like, remember part one? That's not really what happened. This is what happened. Oh man. I caught a, because I saw the last act of Saw One, I saw a lot of Carrie Elwes's performance, <laughs> yes. which is among the worst I've ever seen in a movie after he, after he cuts off his leg and he's like fucking bad Lieutenant, you know, well, writhing, you know, if you made it through the entire series, guess who comes back in part oh, seven? Oh shit. <laughs> Oh, nice. And I know we didn't really talk about the actual horror portions of Saw because, ah, they're so gross. Yeah. Who likes torture stuff? It's it's weird that there was a time when that's what people really wanted in cinema. They're like, I want to feel pain. Well, you know, I guess uh, the Iraq war was happening <laughs> and Abu Ghraib was on our mind and American foreign policy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what some theorist would say. I mean, you got to blame it on something, right? Yeah. 